Verulam Sports. Hello again and welcome to Verulam Sports Podcasting. And in the week in which Crystal Palace's Wilfred Zaha took a literal stand on the um, pre-game kneeling situation. At this time, we are incredibly fortunate indeed be, uh, to be joined and to welcome a man who is heavily involved, indeed, a tutor for the Kickoff at Three initiative. He is a former Jamaican captain, a member of the Brentford Bees Hall of Fame, and a graduate of the Crazy Gang of Wimbledon Football Club, circa 1994 through to 2009. It is, of course, a pleasure to welcome to Varum Sports, Marcus Gale. Marcus, how are you? Well, thank you, Tony. Thanks for having me on tonight. Seriously, my my pleasure and indeed a massive honour. Lots to discuss, Marcus. Again, what a what a great career, right up to the very elite. I mean, well, cup level is where you plied your trade. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to begin by saying uh, I know that you are a member of the Brentford Bees Hall of Fame. I think you do a little bit of uh, commentary for them, indeed, act ambassadorially for them as well, and. Everybody at Brentford at this moment in time must be buzzing and get, getting back to winning ways at the weekend. But it's a tough old league, isn't it, the championship? Yeah, it's a very, very difficult league. Lots of good teams that have come down into the championship and a few good ones that come up from the, the League One level. So it's a very competitive league uh, and no one can really sort of take their foot off the pedal or take their eye off the ball, literally. Um, because before too long, someone could run away with the league. But everyone can beat everybody, uh, no matter what size or stature the club is. Um, But for Brentford, Brentford's been punching above its weight for quite a few years at the Championship, but done extremely well by finishing always in the top 10. So hopefully this season might be the one where we can finally do it. Yeah, again, well in contention. And we've been uh, very fortunate indeed to speak on many an occasion with uh, Cliff Crown, the chairman of the, uh, of the Bees there. I'm sure you know that gentleman mm. very well yeah. indeed. And it is the dream, isn't it, the Premiership? And obviously it was agonising last season to mm. get so near and fall in the playoff hurdle. Uh, I guess from your perspective... Players, uh, you know, have moved back into the Premiership from that season, but Tony is getting it done this campaign. What have you noticed? Is there a maturation there that gives you real faith this is indeed going to be the season? Or is it still, watch this space? It's still it's a bit of both, really. You have to watch this space, but it's also a roller coaster of emotions along the, the course of nine months, 46 grueling matches. Um, I think we've got 11 uh, to play, probably 10 up by the time this goes out. So, um, yeah, it's a difficult season to, to get through, to navigate. Um, and the team, you know, at the start of the season, we lost two very influential players in uh, Saeed Ben-Rama and Ollie Watkins. Yes. Who went to West Ham and Aston Villa. Uh, and then we brought in Ivan Tony from Peterborough. That's really hit the ground running. He's the leading scorer to date with 26 league goals. Um, hopefully he's got aspirations to play for Jamaica as well. Um, that's the talk in the Caribbean. Uh, so we've got someone that we've got good hands on in terms of goals. We've got a proper goal threat there again for the third consecutive season. So, um, yeah, it's all to play for. But it's, a, it's, a, it's probably, for me, one of the best leagues to, to watch because of so much excitement is, is put onto the games. 
And it's just so unpredictable, isn't it? You just you just can't really uh, ever be a confident pundit when it comes to the EFL. Uh, I think coming up, Derby County, and one of the key themes that I'm really looking to explore with you is uh, that of management. Um, mm-hmm. Would love to get your uh, take on young Mr. Rooney's efforts so far. Uh, they were struggling when he came there with the Rams, and he's got them up to above the relegation zone. Uh, good efforts, and I think exceeding himself so far very early though as it is in his fledgling managerial career just quickly your thoughts on Wayne Rooney's early efforts well the championship is is probably the most difficult league to come into and and trying to hit the ground running Uh, it doesn't matter what sort of reputation you've got as a player it's still a a topsy-turvy league to get in I think managers don't really last there that long I think it's probably about seven or eight months Mm. maybe less for their tenure at any club so He's coming at the the deep end, but he's got experience of playing the game. Now he needs to transmit that into managing and coaching players, which can take some time. And as I said, the championship is not a league there where you're going to get a lot of time to get things right. Um, But hopefully he can, but that's after they play Brentford uh, tomorrow night. I I wish him all the best after that. That's fantastic. As I say, I'm sure that uh, he would be kind of thinking similar things, but flip reverse. But there we go. Good stuff. Um, For me, Marcus, when I think of you, the kind of thing that I always immediately springs to mind is you as a member of the crazy gang, uh, the Wimbledon team. Talking about Brentford punching above the weight. Of course, Wimbledon, uh, a little bit before your time there, uh, shocked the world and uh, beat Liverpool in the 88 FA Cup final, um, but always were one of those sides that kind of embraced, didn't they, that kind of crazy gang attitude. Got to ask you, for some of those memories and some of the tape. Was that a, a fair moniker that was applied to Crazy Gang? Yeah, most definitely. Um, <laughs> it was a team that punched well above its weight for many years in the top flight. I think it was 13 years uh, we had it at that level. Um, and we enjoyed it. There was a lot of laughter, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of pranks. But we also gave it a lot of hard effort Mm-hmm. into the matches and, and cause the stir. You know, a lot of teams didn't want to play us. Yeah. It was like the unfashionable team that no one wanted to play, but we had that reputation of beating all the top boys. And I enjoyed my time at the club over, I think it was seven years that I had playing for them and um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Learned so much. Mm. And it kind of, it kind of, I think the Brentford experience kind of got me ready for the, the Wimbledon experience. Um, and now I'm back at Brentford, <laughs> another underdog team that is doing and punching above its weight, as I said. So it's like a full circle for me going around. And, uh, you know, I never played, I wouldn't say I played for a huge club apart mm. from my short spell in Glasgow Rangers. But other than that, I played for teams that were probably a bit unfashionable, but had a point to prove. And um, I think my characteristic suited those teams that I played for. I think you've kind of uh, assessed that so well, but I'm intrigued because, yeah, it's kind of embraced the uh, crazy gang moniker, but big characters and a lot of leaders, I think. Uh, Tell me about some of, I guess, the qualities of some of the leaders in that uh, Wimbledon time that you maybe learned from and maybe also 
gave a bit of your own leadership skills too as well. So talk to me about the leadership qualities of some of that Wimbledon team. Well, it was, a, as you said, it had a team full of characters, really strong characters, John Fashadun, Vinnie Jones, Robbie Earl, um, just to name a few in there. So I, I, I had a baptism of fire just by training with these guys, playing matches and learning every minute of each match with those guys. Um, and I think if you didn't learn anything, there's something wrong with you. Mm, All mm. you have to do is just observe the sort of the confidence in John Fashion, the, the physical presence that mm. he had. So, so I picked up on that for starters. Um, Did I he have a wooga in the changing rooms or was that a gladiators thing? <laughs> no, that's a gladiators thing. I don't think he said that. <laughs> He's done a lot of other things, which I won't be able to say. Indeed. But, um, Family I, show. I, I only had nine games playing with him, but that was an education in itself about how he carried himself yeah sort of vibe he had with the opposition they was all very weary of him mm-hmm. i was just taking little mental notes mm-hmm. as i'm playing the games and then you, you got someone like vinnie jones that was very mm-hmm. very vocal um and would you know tell you what's going to happen <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's the opposition so he, he had different leadership skills in terms of he thrived on having all the attention on himself in a good way um and that means the crowd as well, hammering him. The referee will be on him. Players would want to wind him up. And I think that gave the other nine outfield players the opportunity to just relax and play the game. Um, so for me, he kind of sacrificed his own, mm. his own sort of footballing ability to, to allow us to thrive. And I think that was a, a different type of captain that I've had um, during my time. But he was a very, very good captain in that. And then Robbie Earl was... You know, Mr. Action Man, dynamic. He can talk, he mm-hmm. can defend and score goals, as you know. Um, and he would take leadership in his own hands. He would tell me, look, Bailey, we don't need you coming all the way back. Stay up there mm-hmm. and try and cause them a problem, which was something that the manager wouldn't say. But Robbie would say, no, I'll take the hit for that mm-hmm. and try and get us back in the game. So that was another type of leadership quality. So they was all part of that very vocal group. Um, and then you've seen the captain's sort of characteristics change over the, the, mm. the years, the decades, where they're probably a bit more silent and just more performance related mm-hmm. and just doing the job at hand and leading from their own sort of uh, performance. Well, I'll tell you, it's really fascinating to learn the different modes that that quality can apply. And it's strikes me marcus you literally stated that you were making notes on uh, john there fashion you uh, but it seems that you appreciated and gained an awful lot from all of those and for me that is also one of the important aspects um, moving forwards, though, I want to go back to a specific season and very auspicious season for Wimbledon. I think it was their 20th season, actually, uh, in the Football League, 96-97 season. 13-goal campaign for you that year. Eighth place in the Premier League. Uh, semi-finalists in both FA and League Cups. And um, I want to ask you about, for a team like that punching in your words above their weight in retrospect when you get to a semi-final again Wimbledon of course a few years ago had held aloft the FA Cup and you lose in a semi-final do you just get what's the what's the emotion there I mean is it almost worse to lose in a semi-final than a final one wonders um I remember that season very well for a number of reasons um 
the difference between the two semi-final losses for us or for me was the Chelsea one it was like men against boys we had no chance mm-hmm. against them they, they had signed Gianfranco Zola um, just after a 4-1 no 4-2 defeat we gave them at Stamford Bridge and that was the last time we ever beat them at their own patch and then I think end of that month they signed Zola and since they signed him we could never beat uh, Chelsea again with him in the team and he played in that semi-final and and he was probably the main difference in that so there was no arguments about that one Um, the one with uh, Leicester that was the one that probably disturbed me the most because they went on to lift it didn't they the Fox went on to lift it but we drew the first leg nil-nil and then brought them home I think I scored in the first half to put us 1-0 up and then you start thinking, you know what, we could make it. And then they, they equalised with about 35 minutes to go and we ended up just drawing the game and they, they went through on away goals. Um, so that took me about three nights of right. to recover um, because I was just thinking it was 35 minutes away from playing at Wembley and we just failed it. We didn't lose the game but we, we went out on you know, technicality of not scoring um, an away goal. As you say, it's one of those rules that is a strange one. And I guess as a player, um, we would have to accept it. Uh, I say we there as if I was ever a player agonizing losing in a semi-final on, a, on the technicality of the away goals rule. Yeah. But it is one of those ones that I don't know. I can understand the logic behind it. I'd rather that than VAR at the moment, I'll tell you that. Oh, goodness me. We're close to opening Pandora's box right now, <laughs> Marcus. Goodness gracious. Uh, tell you. Um, yeah, well, since you brought it up, since you brought it up, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to very keep a handle on this uh, Pandora's box. But just briefly, I don't see it going away. Consequently, Marcus Gale and Marcus Gale alone. What is your two pennies on the VAR that we are experiencing oh. at this moment? As an ex-striker of high calibre. It, it's, it's difficult. The things that are getting called for offside, it could be just the, the thickness of your shirt, or it could be the length of your beard that is ruled offside now. Uh, I think the technology itself is brilliant. I think it needs a, a lot more human interaction with it. And, and I would like to hear or make it be a bit more like rugby, where it's more transparent with what decisions are made. So it, you know, it informs the crowd and they can hear what's going on instead of the sort of secrecy and yeah. all the decisions being made. And then one half's happy and the other half is wound up. And, you know, you know how football is. It's very tribal as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it does help the game, but a lot of it is, is really taking away the, the sort of enjoyment. So can you, can you score a goal and, and run off naturally and celebrate? You can't with VAR because you have to wait for the decision. To be made, and then I think it just takes away that natural response from players uh, and especially fans as well. And oh, goodness me, especially fans, we can only hope when they get uh, mm. back. I mean, fingers crossed, before too very long. Um, but yes, VAR, I'm going to move forth from VAR because mm. um, Mama said to me as a kid, if you've not got anything good to say, say nothing at all. But there we go. Um, the next season, another big year for you, though, uh, for, for a different reason. Um, 98, and the first time ever Jamaica make it to a World Cup 
And I think, again, a tournament that you got, they found the back of the net in for Jamaica. Um, before we talk about your memories from France, I just want you to tell us a little bit about the story of the fact that this wasn't an uh, easy uh, international setup, was it? Uh, obviously, you think you got a cap for England youth at uh, 1988, and there was mm-hmm. a talk of technicalities, a Wimbledon clause in your contract, mm-hmm. meaning that you could only uh, represent England. Can you just explain to me a little bit further mm-hmm. about how it was indeed the case that you were able to represent Jamaica in their World Cup efforts from '98? Well, firstly, I qualify through my father, who's Jamaican. So that was the easy part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, I had a good season at Wimbledon, signed mm-hmm. a new contract. They, they, the club felt there's a chance I could play for England. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, Glenn Hoddle was in charge, and I knew he had his, his head scout coming mm-hmm. to watch our games. Um, I think they were looking at maybe myself, Chris Perry, uh, Robbie O at the same time. Looking back on it, it, realistically, there was a long queue of very good strikers ahead of me. Um, so I didn't really feel that I would have mm. had a sniff in there. I might have got called up for a squad. Who knows? But you can't live off just a squad placement. Um, I had gone and got a Jamaican passport, which mm-hmm. the club were furious about. But I looked upon it as, well, you're, de- you're denying me or you're not acknowledging my ancestry. Yes, I am born here, mm-hmm. but I can play for Jamaica and I could have played for Barbados as well because mm. my mum's from Barbados. Um, but once you have a passport drawn up, there's, there's not much the club can do. Um, they were furious with it and it had to go to FIFA to get cleared up and they voted in, in my favour in January mm. of 98. So there was a lot... I was caught in the middle because <laughs> on one hand, I've got the the club furious with me and on the other hand the nation of Jamaica they're furious with me thinking I don't want to come I'm only waiting until we qualify mm-hmm. but the backstory was they flew me out in, in the summer of 97 to, to take a little trip for three or four days just to show me everything took me to the stadium took me to a lovely restaurant uh, and I just said look I, I just want to play I felt yeah. the vibe I felt the connection mm. uh, and that was never going to be broken Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to explain to them my contractual situation is that there's something in there that is, you know, potentially stopping me from joining up. Um, but that came through in, in uh, January of uh, 1998. And then the following month, I got called up to, to the Gold Cup squad that was playing out in America. And my mm-hmm. baby was against the mighty Brazil, which we drew nil-nil. I came on as a second half sub and, and loved it. There was 45,000 fans there singing a national anthem. And that was, that was spine tingling, that moment. Mm. Just to hear the anthem of your people singing yeah. out aloud. And I think it scared the Brazilians at the time because we drew nil-nil and they, they were fuming about the results. So, yeah, that's the sort of backstory to, to my inclusion. I just really appreciate that uh, you kind of uh, took the question away from me. I was going to ask about the emotions of it all and the experiences of hearing that anthem and obviously all that that represents. Mm. Um, but then uh, the, at its most basic level, as a player, you've reached the elite of the elite, haven't you? Particularly at a World Cup. 
and I just would be fascinated to learn a little bit more about the expectations of the nation and I guess to a degree uh, expanding the panorama of the Caribbean for the Jamaicans out there in France and the pressure of that but the thrill of that I mean just talk to me about the, the, just the, this is why you kick a ball as a kid isn't it? Oh the experience was totally fulfilling um, from when we left the airport in Kingston and um, you know the, the amount of people that was at the airport just to wish us the best and they just said you know what we just want to talk French for one day making us so proud um, and then when we get there we're like probably the, the, the talk of the tournament in terms mm. of the Caribbean nation there it's Jamaica we're full of colour and vigour and all this sort of stuff um, and we played on that to a point so we, we enjoyed ourselves mm. we, we had some in, inside turmoil with you know formation and all this sort of mm. stuff which should have been sorted out long before um, I don't know why it was changed as we it's, got to France but it certainly doesn't it feel as though it's ideal for the biggest nah, tournament in football context it wasn't we, we went there playing 3-5-2 as a system and that's what qualified us um, and that's what we always played it was organic to the players that we had mm-hmm. and then we got to France and the coach decided it's going to go 4-4-2 and everyone was like whoa whoa and and that just kind of destabilised the mm. performances. But by then, it was, it was too late. We had to like, just deal with it. Um, the first two games, which we lost, I think it was 3-1 to Croatia and then 5-0 against Argentina. And then we had a massive meeting after that. Mm-hmm. We felt embarrassed. Mm. Um, I didn't play in the first two, so my headspace was in a different way. I was just thinking, I want to go home now. Um, mm-hmm. The Argentina game fell on my first anniversary. Um, and my daughter was already born, um, you know. So I sacrificed a bit in terms of my daughter was only ten days old, and I was mm. gone for seven weeks. And then there's me sitting on the bench for the first two games, and I, mm. I just sat there. So if I had my passport, I would just go home. Um, but we had a good talk about it, mm. not just myself, but everybody else because yeah. of the performance. And then we we got our wish. We went back to three five two. I was in the team. Um, I was about to take all the credit, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> one, two, one. One, two, one. Theodore Whitmore scored two brilliant goals. Um, and he, he set the record straight. We, we played a tournament and we won a game. There's, there's two takeaways you could, t- you could say from that. Either, you know, just uh, make Marcus start and we're, we're laughing all the way. Or cons- go with what you n- got you to the table. And you know, allow this team to play in the formia- uh, formation that felt organic to them. I just, I'm, I'm perplexed as to the reason yeah. as to why to so late in the day um, deviate from that. Surely there was wisdom in it. I mean, I'm no international manager, but there we go. So, fascinating uh, mixture of emotions there for you at this uh, mm. festival of football. And again, so many sort of highs and lows within your career. Bit of a roller coaster ride. Just circling back to those, um, you know, um, crazy gang days. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the relegation season. I think it was a 14 year tenure, I believe, for Wimbledon at the uh, Premier League. And we were talking there, World Cup pressure. But what mm. 
last game of the season, this is for all the marbles kind of a pressure, particularly when Bradford went and worked the Oracle, didn't mm. they? Yeah, they, um, I think they beat Liverpool. We just, did, that's it. we just needed to match what Bradford were doing and we were fine. But we had to take care of our own business, which was against Southampton and we yeah. just came up short. Well, that season was a, a mixture of, you know, the, I think the camp was, was split for the first time in my, in my career there, where some players wanted to do it, some players didn't want to do it, some players didn't care either way. Um, so we, our squad was basically that, um, and that affects everybody. So you need, you need, you know, the Wimbledon spirit is togetherness, and if everyone ain't together, that was the season we, we finally got. And, and that's what relegated the club. So, yeah, that, that was another roller coaster of emotions. I felt embarrassed. I didn't mm. want to be seen that summer. I didn't want to play, I think they called it first division at the time. I didn't even want to play that. <laughs> but that was a level I had to, had to kickstart the, the new season in until I got a move to, to Glasgow Rangers uh, about seven months later. But, yeah, it was a tough period. And, it, it, you know, there's a lot of changes upstairs with the management and the coaches. and and all these things kind of played a part in terms of the sort of the breakdown of the team spirit and that camaraderie that was world renowned. So learned a lot from that. Um, and, and, you know, the club had, you know, had a horrible history after that period as well, but has bounced back to league. Football, yes. Thankfully. So, you know, that spirit is still there live and kicking, but um, it, it probably shouldn't have been in that predicament in the first place. Well, again, sometimes it comes back down to management, doesn't it? And management starts at the very highest level at the boardroom. And I'm excited to discuss that with you in just a moment. Um, before we proceed there, I'm going to ask you this, just coming back momentarily to uh, Jamaica. And you actually went on to Skipper um, Jamaica, which I think is phenomenal. But I did want to ask you this, Marcus, and I'm kind of intrigued because I'm always open to education and being enlightened mm -hmm. here. Love the, the game of football. It is the world game. It is the beautiful game. But I'm always at heart a rugby man. So I'm mm -hmm. a touch cynical, a touch cynical about the role of a captain. I understand in any sport, particularly in a team sport, the importance of leadership. And you really thrilled me with your insights on that but I've always kind of seen in a uh, football context you know they shake hands and you know they might do that leadership role but like anybody it's just a it's just an armband whereas for instance in a rugby game uh, and you mentioned uh, maybe rugby you know again not that I'm thinking it's amazing at the moment but it's maybe slightly utilizing technology well so hurrah mm. for that I think cricket's even better, but that's just be our chat. Anyway, uh, in a rugby game, the captain can influence things actively, uh, decide to take three points, kick for touch, you know. And I never really saw that in a captain in football. But I'm, I'm open to I'm open to be inspired. I don't know if you can, as a captain at international level, just uh, give me an insight of to what influence in game can be achieved. Um, I think. It's not just on the field. I think it's off the field as well within mm -hmm. football. I think for me, being, I think I was the first English-born Jamaican captain uh, when the armband was passed on to me from Rene Simois. Um, 
he saw my sort of calming influence about things. I'm not a screamer or shouter. Mm. I like to, to do things by performance or lead by performance um, on and off the field um, and how I conduct myself. And I think the, the coach, he saw those qualities. Um, so, for instance, before every, every match, uh, the coach would want someone to just say a prayer for the players, mm. some positive words, and then we would recite Psalm 23. Okay. So Do you know what? identified me for that role, which I would you Would you be so kind as to, from memory, uh, <laughs> tell, yeah, tell us what it. Psalm 23 is? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. I grew up, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm shaming my, uh, you know, upbringing here because I was educated in a, in a Christian school. Um, yeah. But off the top of my head, I can't recall Psalm 23. Can you, can you help it's, me out here? It's about the Lord is my shepherd. That's what it's about. It's about positivity. Mm-hmm. It's about, yes, there are going to be some roller coaster moments, but you're going to overcome because you've got the Lord's strength behind you. So I used to uh, say my own personal words before and mm-hmm. then recite Psalm 23. Um, we're all in a circle. Mm-hmm. And that will kind of empower us to go out, mm-hmm. um, especially at home in the Kingston National Stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the crowd to deal with as well. So you're, you're fully charged mm. um, to perform and that responsibility when you hear the anthem, you've got your hand over your heart, over the badge. And it, as I said, it, it, it empowers you. So I think the coach saw my sort of off-the-field qualities mm. as, a, as, a, as a tool to help, uh, to bring some calmness um, and that professional edge as well. Mm. Um, I had that role for about a season, um, which I loved. Um, and then the, the manager changed and we had a few little issues as well. So that that, that kind of put my career at the end. Mm. I, I, I love being the captain. It was a very honourable role. Um, but captains are all different sort of characteristics now. Um, as I said, I wasn't a screamer or shouter, but mm. I would lead in a, in a quieter way. Um, and sometimes people just want to scream and shout. I don't know if that qualifies anybody to, to lead anybody. <laughs> if we did, the world's in trouble. Yeah. So um, it takes every all types of characters to make a team work with cohesion and um, and greater performances. Do you know? Again, I can only say a big, big thank you. Um, I don't think I've fully converted to the influential uh, role of, uh, of captaincy on pitch, but to get your insights there into the captain's role as you took it to in, uh, encourage and cultivate a sense of um, commonality and a, what you might as well call culture, I found really, really compelling there. So, yeah, Marcus, what can I say? Uh, you know, you've, you've broadened my horizons there. So Hopefully. thank you. Hopefully. Anyway, um, moving on now. Um, again, the natural progression, perhaps, um, from a good leader of men in the captain on field is into the magic managerial arena. Uh, obviously, you know, your career didn't end at Wimbledon. It went back to uh, Watford and, you know, another stint at Brentford, but I'm supremely grateful for your time, Marcus. So I'd just like to get your uh, memories of your time as a head honcho for Staines, seeing mm-hmm. a cup win, not as a, you know, going beyond the semi-final stage there. And just wondering if there are still lingering aspirations to get back into the managerial world. Um, I had a 
great period as a coach, coaching of young players. I, I coached in total for, I would say, six and a half years, four at Wimbledon, AFC Wimbledon, and then two and a half at Staines. Um, and working around talented mm. young men that needed an uh, opportunity. Um, I worked with some really talented individuals, um, which, which was great. Um, the level wasn't great, but that's what it was at the time. Mm-hmm. But, but it, it, it got me used to like communicating and working mm-hmm. on my own skills mm-hmm. about how to, how to convince players and want it, you know, to want them to want more out of themselves and out of each other. Um, and it was basically just talking about life with them, not mm. really overly tactical with them. Um, but I think at that stage for myself and them, it was talking about life and, and relating things in life that are happening in the game. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy thing to do, but, you know, I used to use some examples. Um, I used to use a, a certain box of uh, cat food <laughs> to, to wind them up because it's, they knew what it signified. I won't say what it signified on there, but... Okay, it, it, interesting. It, it, the tool works every single time it, it came out of my bag. The players knew what it was about. Um, and it raised their performances. It got their heart rate going, got their head screwed on. Because uh-huh. at that level, not everyone's going to do the right things. I, I came from a professional background. Yes, yes. I, I want the right things done all the time. Got you. I don't, I don't eat a bowl of excuses every morning. I want the right <laughs> thing done all the time to the best of your ability. Yeah. That's it. So that's what I brought. And then I took that on into Staines um, and giving young players again the opportunity to play because they kept saying, oh, managers don't play youngsters. And, and most of my squad was 19, 20. Yeah. Um, we rolled our luck in that first year, um, mm-hmm. but we, we grew so much that we finished, I think it was eighth place the following year. Mm-hmm. Got to the FA Cup first round, which was against Brentford. So that was a special moment for me. Man, it's a, it's a funny old world, isn't it? It's a, it worked out well. It, it was Greavesy, wasn't it? I think um, Jimmy Greaves, who stated yeah. famously, it's a funny old game. Case yeah. in point, right there. Well, yeah, it was it was a dream come true to to get the club where it first started, and I, I came out and I got a round of applause by all four sides of the crown, which is unheard of. Um, we lost five nil, so <laughs> I don't really want to talk about that, but. The, the experience with the players and what they got from it was, was great. Mm-hmm. Um, again, continuing the life skills talk. Yes. Uh, half, half of training was that. Um, and I think they can all look back and think they'll, they'll carry some of those teachings on into their adult life now. Because mm. a lot of them are, you know, not that they're getting old, but they're like 30, mm-hmm. 29, 30 now. Some are 27, whatever. But um, I think they would look back and think, I would hope to think, they will take some of my sort of teachings of life mm. into their own life. And if they're going to pursue anything in coaching, they'll, they'll think about things I used to do, mm. <laughs> things that they had fun with because we had a lot of fun. Um, and I'll be at the bottom sure of they, Maybe some of them will find their own brand of mm. inspiring trigger to, uh, you know, get another generation moving forwards. Mark, yeah. absolutely fantastic. Um, that was back in, uh, I think, 2012, 2013. Um, is there, like I say, now for you, and we'll talk uh, just briefly about the here and now and the wonderful things that mm. you're doing. But 
what's uh, in your heads any more aspirations to sh see what you could do in the managerial game or are you now just focused in on the exciting ambassadorial work that you do um no aspirations to manage or coach anymore i think that sh that ship sailed for me uh -huh. um i took a year's break after i got sacked at stains uh, and that was important for me because i i was always involved in the game up to I think I was 44 at the time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I never got to know my adult life up until I got sacked which was a bit scary and a bit daunting so I had to kind of rediscover my sort of myself uh, introduce myself to my other self the footballers mm -hmm. inside and uh, and get back on that horse and get, get galloping again um, so there's no aspirations in that I'm very happy with the work I do as an ambassador at kick-off at three yes um, I'm also the club ambassador at Brentford, the very mm -hmm. the first one. Um, and I do tutoring, at, at, uh, kick it out as well. So I've been doing that for the last five years. And I feel that, you know, players need support through education. They need that yes. guidance. Um, they need that mentoring. Yes. Um, and and that, that excites me. Mm. It's, um, it's, it's just life coaching young people to hopefully achieve their dreams um, and play a small part in that. Because I think the world has kind of gone off track at times mm, and mm. You know, youngsters are in a bit of disarray and there's no one to really put an arm around them to say, look, things can be all right. You know, this moment doesn't have to define mm. the rest of your life, but, you know, what can we learn from it? How can we move forward? And how can we be positive about it? So those are the things that drive me right now. Um, so that kind of puts an end to any sort of managerial aspirations. But it doesn't mean I'm, I'm finished with football. I would love to be a board member at a football club as well well i tell you what i'm glad you mentioned that because you're a graduate aren't you of the pfa um ebm uh project the effective board member and we've spoken haven't we about the influences of culture uh, yeah. and all of this and um you know the um important work of course that kick it out strives towards and you are yeah. an important role as a tutor there up and down the land but it is only at the very highest echelons of society that things will ever truly uh shift i think it's also imperative at the grassroots where you're playing a core role but if at the grassroots you're not seeing anything other than a certain character then there is always going to be, even if it is just merely at the back of your mind, the sense that, well, it's us against them and this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. So please tell me about um, the, that course and some of the key lessons you picked up and then the goals to apply them. Yeah, the, the, the PFA-sponsored course was it's called On Board. I started that in 2014 along with other ex-players, uh, even my, my work colleague Troy Townsend, that's how I met Troy mm. all those years ago. So we kind of had that sort of commonality with that group. Um, and we learned a lot of good sort of key skills in that about mm. transparency, honesty, mm. the language of a boardroom. Mm -hmm. How does a boardroom work effectively? What are mm -hmm. the, the indicators of it not working so well? And how do you challenge that and put things right? Mm -hmm. um, I understood the groupthink mentality pretty mm -hmm. well and I think at the time what helped to, to kind of graduate everybody was at that time FIFA was in disarray mm. 
So I've personally looked at that and I'm, I'm sure a few of the other people in the group looked on it as well as like a case study. Yeah. How, how the head of it said he didn't know what was going on at this level, but he's the head of it. Um, just just so I'm clear in my head, um, are we chatting around about the bladder-ish era? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. got you, got you. So, so that bladder didn't know what mm. was going on in the middle part <laughs> of the organisation, mm -hmm. which was being accused of corruption and all that. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was a good time. So mm. having done that, there's, I've encouraged other players, mm. other individuals to get on the board, and, and they've done the same thing. Mm. So I'm sort of like, not not a scout, but I would recommend people to do it because I think get that training in now um, because it may come in handy later on. It might not be for you right now, but mm -hmm. 10, 15 years time, it may come in handy for a player that's just, you know, coming to the end of his career uh, is to get that experience. And, and I've got a year's experience with the Barks and Box County FA. Excellent. Um, to sit in there and understand what's going on and how, how does it function. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I, I, was, I was the unique one in the room, <laughs> which mm -hmm. was the state of the place. Uh, can I just um, say, just but, not that I, I don't want to uh, diminish anything, but considerably mm -hmm. better than not one in the room, Marcus, I would say. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I just don't know. It's so important, these things. And uh, again, just reminders of, for anybody listening who might be wanting to consider uh, this important drift into the high yeah. sphere at the board level. On what level? What's, uh, what is the course again? And uh, you know, where can we find more on that regard? Well, I think it's only... It's only going through the PFA at this mm -hmm. stage. Um, I'm sure the organisers of the course is a, is a guy called Kevin George. Okay. Um, no, Carl George, sorry, not Kevin George. I know a Kevin George as well. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Carl George, he, he's the one that leads this uh, training. So I'm sure if he got, he got in touch with him, he could lead you through that process or give you the access to it. Mm -hmm. um, but I just think it's important that we have diverse voices yes um i think that's important i think when you look at all the uh the current problems not current problems but the big problems of the last 12 months have uh -huh. surrounded the game with what topic racism mm -hmm. uh blm which is kind of controversial on one hand um and that's kind of put every organization and company on 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 their tippy toes in terms of oh mm -hmm. we need to do something mm. um which is great, but when I see the changes that are being made, it's not the changes ain't being filled with those spaces. The spaces mm. ain't being filled with people that are being abused. It's mm. not filled by black voices to get that experience. We're having other cultures, you know, use the platform of what's gone on, particularly in the last twelve mm. months, to get in those spaces. Where and that's just what from what I see from my own yep. experience and. And perspective um, and I think that needs to be looked upon as well mm. is that we still haven't seen black voices in boardrooms um, but they're going to be talking about black topics and how to handle players being abused like I say I mean I totally get that and I wouldn't even know where to begin with authenticity Marcus 
if that makes any degree of sense. Anyway, one man that you and I both know very well, and you've already mentioned that you are proud to be connected to, is Michael Wallace and the phenomenal work that they do. uh, Was we've spoken there about the need to shift the board and the upper echelons. It is, of course, the flip reverse and the other scale of this, uh, the grassroots, which, of course, represents our futures and the wonderful work that Kickoff at Three of Michael Wallace does tirelessly. Uh, they are, of course, a voluntary organization. Astonishes me. I've got to ask, I mean, how did you guys link up? I know he's almost Olympic, uh, you know, Herculean <laughs> in his Twitter endeavors. Uh, we met for a mutual friend um, at an event. Um, and yeah, he just asked me, would I would like to get involved? He told me what the project was about, yep. uh, what he wanted to achieve. And I said, yeah, of course, I'd love to get involved. So I'm an ambassador now for, for his charity, his, yep. his movement. Um, and Kick off at three. The positive work that you know Michael and Ashley they do is incredible. You know the tournament we had last October, they probably had about two to three hundred kids down on a Sunday, mm-hmm. and um, and I believe we you know the tournament saves lives. Do you know, do you know, Marcus? It's just come to my mind that uh, and don't misconstrue this. Perhaps oh. you and I are being a little bit rude here because <laughs> we're talking there on a lot of assumed knowledge. Um, and maybe people are listening in and have heard the name Michael Wallace and have understood that it refers to kickoff at three and picked up. I'm sure that there was this awesome tournament, but they do so much, but just give me and maybe somebody new to uh, kick off at three, just the, um, in a nutshell, what they do. Well, it's to prevent crimes. It's to build trust between young people and the community police. Um, so there's a better understanding um, and, and just building up that, that trust between Absolutely. the two. And I think the tournament, the tournaments that he's had and Ashley's had have indicated that is that this peace is that rivalry, which like it's a sporting rivalry. Yeah. No one's hurt. There's no, there's no trouble. And I think it's good for the police that are there on the day mm-hmm. that they can see all these different backgrounds coming together under the umbrella of playing football yep. and getting on. And I think that's encouraging for the police to witness that. Mm-hmm. And they, I think it's a blessing that they can see that young people can get on through sport or just in, mm-hmm. in general. Uh, you just got to put the right environment for them and, and you see how they enjoy it. They develop and it's, it's a very um, well-supported cause as well you know it's not just myself there's people like paul cannaville who's involved as well absolutely roger east as well from a different perspective the ex-premier league uh, referee and a whole heap of others and i tell you what's phenomenal about this it goes to show us all started out um as an idea of course and i think the original kickoff at three tournaments was um in croydon but the juggernaut has grown it's been such an amazing uh gift for me to witness uh the growth literally panning the country uh, durham uh ipswich uh into northern ireland that oh. just continue to do phenomenal things and he's such an innovator though isn't he mr wallace obviously you there and on the football side of things 
but uh, swim off at three, I think is going to be coming very soon. Um, there's been, uh, you know, a, a basketball version. And, you know, seriously, it does. And that's, banner of kickoff at three so many innovative and crucial grassroots things doesn't it do you want to provide us their website marcus as it goes i cannot give you off the top of my head but it will be kickoff at three um dot co dot uk yeah the two brilliant guys that got young people at heart and mind um, and not just talking it, they're actually actioning their, their mm-hmm. talk by providing safe environments for kids. It keeps them off the streets for the whole day um, and they can have fun. Last year, we had a lot of parents that came and supported it as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's encouraging for them is that they know their child is in safe hands, safe environment and can go home, hopefully victorious. But it might not be on the football pitch, but it might be making new friends from a totally different part of the country that, They've never been to maybe. So there's so many positives that comes from kickoff at three tournaments and, and what Michael does. And more importantly, what they will continue to do. No questions about it. Um, I've got to tell you, for me, it has been an absolute uh, splendid uh, and enjoyable uh, conversation. I've really valued all of your insights to do with the importance of leadership and the way we are capable of coming together, but obviously being willing to stand up as, of course, for our own sense of bearing. So, Marcus Gale, thank you for your time, your company. I would like to wish you every continued success and happiness. And once again, thanks for your time this evening. Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much.